Hello and welcome to Ask Dr. Gill. I'm Dr. Gil Winkleman and today I want to talk about a very important topic that I plan to cover over and over again in various forms and I thought I'd just start here and it's very technical but I'm going to try and simplify it for, for you all. Um, but before we jump into that, um, the topic by the way is epigenetics. Before we jump into that, I just wanted to give you a little background of who I am. I am a naturopathic physician that I practice in Portland, Oregon. I've worked mostly with mental health and neurological conditions uh, through the years and uh, have my master's in counseling. I have a BA in genetics from Berkeley. And I've sort of combined all of that into my work as a uh, physician and as a naturopath here in Oregon, I mean, I can prescribe pharmaceutical meds, but I find it incredibly rare that I need to. I treat all kinds of conditions from anxiety, uh, depression, insomnia, migraine headaches, autism, uh, uh, behavior issues in children, including oppositional defiant conduct disorder and reactive attachment disorder, OCD. And uh, I think I said autism, and I do that without using pharma pharmaceuticals. And the way I can do that is I understand physiology, and and a lot of what I educate my patients about is about various um, processes in the body and the physiology, and uh, that are important. And as and as you know that you can start treating that to unwind the pieces that are not working properly. And that's where our topic begins today. Uh, because epigenetics is, is one of the most important parts of this, and understanding epigenetics is, is crucial to treating people uh, with or without pharmaceuticals. I mean, and, and a lot of research today is going towards understanding epigenetics. I don't believe there's any mainstream pharmaceutical approaches to uh, that, that use epigenetics yet, but, but they're coming. I mean, it, it will sort of happen over time is my, my prediction and so forth. So, so what is epigenetics? Well, to understand epigenetics, we really need to talk about uh, genetics first. So with genetics, the the key component about it is you have something called DNA inside the cell, deoxyribonucleic acid, and there's code within that DNA that then uh, is transformed into proteins, and those proteins go out and do stuff in the cells. In you know the the simple thing is is that from a from a from a basic level, it seems like it's really easy. The the DNA is told by something or it knows what to do, and it creates what the cell needs. But it, it's actually a lot more complex than that. And uh, one of the things that is intriguing about DNA is there's a lot of it that fits in a small space, which complicates the approach that the cell takes as far as how does it get to the part that is needed at a particular time. And let me give you an analogy 
so that you kind of understand the complexity of this. So my office is, you know, the office I'm sitting in right now to do this recording is about 10 by 10. Now imagine taking all of the train tracks that are on the west coast of the United States and folding it up and shoving it into that 10 by 10 room. Uh, it, it's not going to be easy, right? Now, train track is probably a, a bad example um, because it's not very flexible. But if you took, say, you know, the equivalent amount or, or even, uh, you know, take the, all the train tracks that are in the U.S., and, and it, you, you convert it into, say, um, yarn, and you spooled all of the yarn and then put it in the room, it would take a long time. But that's kind of what, what has happened with our DNA. It's, you know, miles and miles and miles of, of these base pairs, which is what the code is made out of. And it's, you know, then spooled in a way that, that makes it challenging to get to the areas that the cell might need at a particular time. So, you know, going back to the train track analogy, let's say you wanted to go from Seattle to Portland on the train, but it's all, all this track is spooled into my 10 by 10 office. Well, you're going to have to unspool the Seattle to Portland train track and lay it out and then run the train and then spool it back up. And that's what the cell does when it's making a protein or proteins um, at a particular time. So, you know, when, back when I was an undergrad in genetics, um, kind of the way the textbooks talked is that the DNA, let most of it had function in terms of proteins. And the only thing that we needed to figure out is what the codes were so we could identify which proteins were where and then identify when there's a genetic defect, when, when there's a base pair or base pairs either missing or wrong, we would know exactly what was going on. And we, we could cure disease that way. And, and so as part of that, um, there was a project started called the Human Genome Project. Uh, and they basically were trying to map all of these base pairs. They were expecting to find about 100,000 to 150,000 genes based on the complexity of humans and the number of proteins that we have and so on and so forth. And what they found was curious when they were done about 15 years later. That is, is that there were way fewer genes and that a lot of the DNA was, quote, superfluous or, you know, just sort of random, seemingly random base pairs um, that didn't encode for anything. And they found, I think it was 23,768 genes in the human body or the human genome. Uh, there's more genes in a Pinot Noir grape than there is in a human. And I, I, um, I love telling patients that because they, you know, we live, I live in an area where they grow a lot of Pinot Noir and people drink a lot of Pinot Noir and they're like, wow, really? Um, so, so in any case, you know, this, this created a, a curious problem, uh, in science, which is, well, how do we get the diversity and complexity, uh, in humans that we, 
you know, know exists with so little DNA, I mean, so little proteins. And it, basically, we, we're sort of rethinking a lot as far as how the body works and how the DNA works. And, and there's actually research in Europe, there's some in the US, but it seems like the Europeans are more focused on this superfluous, quote unquote, DNA. And the Americans are more interested in the um, how the genes get formed, you know, or the genes that are actually turning into proteins and understanding those. And I imagine that the answer is going to lie in both, but, uh, but that's another story. So, so this is where epigenetics come in, comes in, because, you know, if you take that train analogy again, and you're, you're, you're a cell and you've shoved all this train track into my office and you want to unspool so you can go to Seattle to Portland, how, how do you know that's what, as a cell, you want to do? And why do you do that route instead of, say, San Francisco to Los Angeles? And the answer has to do with epigenetics. So what's interesting about epigenetics is, is that this is sort of the key to why certain things turn on at particular times. And I'm going to I'm going to give you the punchline, and then we'll we'll talk a little bit about some of the studies that have been done. So the punchline is: what you eat, what you breathe, what you think, what you experience, changes how your DNA functions. So changing your diet, for example, to something will affect how your DNA turns on and off, and why people who you know eat you know, that what we, we would call the standard American diet, high fat, high sugar, lots of fast foods. Uh, that's why those people are more prone to heart disease and diabetes. And you can actually see changes in DNA expression. And it's not, you know, we think of it in terms of, well, you're eating fatty food, you're going to get fat. Yeah, on some level, that's true. But really, what I'm saying is, is that there's an underlying mechanism to that. And within the cell. And so the cell then says, oh, well, you're eating fatty food. I better change and adapt what I'm turning on and off so I can manage that. And sometimes those those things that it manages, even if you reverse the behavior, it doesn't go away. And I'll talk about that in just a second. Here's the weird thing about epigenetics, um, and if you think about it for a minute, it's not actually that weird, but not only what you eat, think, breathe, and experience changes how your DNA is affected, what your parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents ate, breathe, thought, and experienced changes how your DNA is affected, and what you are doing to your body right now in your life is actually going to affect your future offspring as well. So that's what's really interesting, and it, it, it really gives us a model for understanding nature versus nurture, because um, what we're finding is, is that everything that we do is tagging our DNA in a way so that those tags get passed on from generation to generation, but unlike the actual underlying code, those tags can change over time. And so this is, you know, why you would, you look at twin studies and you're like, well, some of the twins, you know, they, they, they're exactly the same and some aren't. Um, and I'm talking about identical twins, you know, their behaviors are the same, their interests are the same. Um, but some of them, 
they have totally different interests. And this is, this is potentially why, you know, they had totally different experiences and, and so forth. So, um, so I want to talk a little bit about the research on this. Um, there have been human studies. They're really complex, how they figured this out. And, um, you know, it's a little less, it's a little less easy to understand, but let me talk a little bit about some of the, uh, studies on mice. And, and I think these studies are, are better to help explain how epigenetics is working. Um, and, um, before I jump into the studies real quick, I just want to mention one thing, because I will bring this up again in other, uh, podcasts, which is about methylation and acetylation. So there's these small hydrocarbons. They're just little, they're little molecules that contain hydrogen and carbon. And the simplest one is called a methyl group. And there's a slightly more complex one called an acetyl group. And these groups sort of, um, they have a free opening and, and, and we have them on different molecules in the body. Um, and they attach to various molecule, other molecules in the body to uh, give sort of uh, function to those molecules. And one of the things that they like to attach to is the DNA or the chromosome structure, you know, the, the wrappings of the DNA. And they help tell the cell when to turn, where to turn on, where to unwind this track, and, or where to rewind the track. And so methylation is one of the ways that we're starting to understand, to understand epigenetic function. And it's a really important concept in the work I do with, um, with mental health, because generally, uh, you know, uh, it, it depends on the condition, but between 20 to 40%, actually it's probably higher, 20 to 60% of patients are either undermethylated, meaning that they don't have enough of these molecules uh, functioning, or they're overmethylated, meaning they have too many of them. And we can measure this indirectly, and I'll talk about that in another podcast, but I wanted to just introduce the concept. Um, and it's been used for both human and mouse studies uh, as far as looking at this. Um, but some of the mouse studies look more at behavior, at disease processes, and the color of the fur. And one of an interesting one was had to do with diet uh, of mice. And so uh, there's a few, you know, I'm, I'm basically clumping in a bunch of different studies that happen as if they're one study, but it's actually several studies. So the first of these studies um, was that they took these mice that had been a yellow color for, you know, successive generations, say 20 generations, and they had a specific feed that they gave this mice. And the mice gave birth to more yellow colored uh, mice, and none of them had diabetes or any health issues. Well, they decided, let's see what the effect of changing our, the diet on these mice to something that's more like a high fat, high sugar, kind of like the standard American diet. And what they found is, is that the mice got diabetes. Okay. And their fur color changed too. Um, it became a little more brown, you know. 
Well, you know, that's probably no different than some of your uncles or, you know, that, you know, Uncle Bob uh, used to be a football player in high school and was in great shape. And he kind of, you know, started gaining weight in his 20s and 30s. And by the time he was 40, just in his 40s and 50s, um, you know, he was diabetic, uh, type 2 diabetic. And he was, um, you know, his skin looked funny, like it, it was sort of pale and, and so forth. And I, you know, I, this is not a surprising study to me. Um, so, but what was interesting, now this is where it become, starts to get fun, is they changed the diet back. And some of the mice, you know, the diabetes went away and their color got better. But some of them didn't. So, okay, they changed the diet back. They didn't get better. The ones that didn't, they had offspring, and they gave birth to brown diabetic mice. Even though they were eating the diet that was, you know, the good diet for the mice. And even though they were giving a good diet to the, brown, to the, to the yellowish or brownish diabetic mice, um, their, diet, their, their diet was the same. They still were yellow or brownish and diabetic as well. So clearly there was an epigenetic shift here is kind of what we're, we're thinking. And, and, you know, that the first generation of mice had something shift that couldn't be undone by just reverting the diet back to the original diet. And that's important in natural medicine because a lot of times people say, well, if I just change my diet, all of my problems will go away. Well, maybe it will and maybe it won't. And we, by the way, do not understand why this does go away in some people and why it doesn't in others. But what was interesting about the mice is that if they did a third intervention where they gave them a supplement, um, which had to do with methylation, by the way, the diet change then started to have an effect so that they became yellow non-diabetic mice. So, you know, obviously there's, there's more than just what we eat happening here. And what, we, what it may have been in the mice is that they, the, the, some of the brown diabetic mice had a B12 deficiency, which is why they couldn't take advantage of the new uh, diet or the, or the original diet, I should say. And this is, this is sort of the, um, uh, this is sort of the key to how we understand epigenetics. And, uh, the B12 is actually, uh, one of the things that we can use in certain cases to help treat people, uh, with methylation issues and get them back on track. So that's, that's sort of my talk uh, about uh, epigenetics today. It, you know, the take-home on this is that uh, what you eat, what you breathe, what you drink, what you experience is affecting your life, your health, as well as future generations' lives and healths, and that you were affected by what your parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents, you know, I don't, I don't know how many generations back, but a number of generations back. And the cool thing about this is, is that we can 
affect this. And um, I can show you how, and you can certainly call my office and set up an appointment if you, if you want. Um, I'm going to be doing more of these podcasts and, and writing as well and talking about a lot of these issues in more detail and more depth. But I wanted to just start with this basic understanding of epigenetics and, um, and so forth. And if you have questions, you know, I, I gave the name of the website, AskDrGill.com, for a reason. You can send a question, uh, questions at AskDrGill.com, um, or put it in the comments below. I'm always happy to get back to people and ask the questions, you know, answer questions. And uh, if there's a topic you want to hear about or, or, or read an article about, please let me know. I'm always happy to take suggestions for those. And, I'm, you know, I work pretty hard at sharing information. And that's what this is about, is sharing information. So I look forward to talking with you next time. Thanks so much for listening.